0: As some listeners may remember from the Forgotten Australia episode about my Titanic ancestor, in 2018 I was reunited with my biological family thanks to clues I've found in electoral roll records on Ancestry.com.au. Since then, I've gone a step further, using Ancestry DNA to connect with a whole bunch of cousins and second cousins. I've met some of them recently and it's really changed my world. Ancestry DNA helped me make other discoveries too, because it's shown that my genetic heritage is 58% Irish. The results took me even deeper than that, revealing my ancestors came from South Leitrim, West Cavern, and bordering counties. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. Maybe you also have Irish heritage. In the lead-up to this St. Patrick's Day, Ancestry is offering you the chance to delve into your background with Ancestry DNA at the special price of $89, saving you $40. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This special offer is valid until the 17th of March 2024, and the price does not include shipping. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's close to midnight on Thursday, the 5th of October, 1876 and three railway workers are shooting the breeze outside the Railway Club Hotel on the corner of La Trobe and Spencer Streets in the gaslit city of Melbourne. Earlier, inside the pub, a seemingly sober sailor had been running amok. The reason this swabby was out of sorts was not clear. He had been drinking, but he didn't seem drunk. But he'd made patrons plenty uneasy because he kept threatening to stab people. Everyone had been relieved when he'd left. Now, outside the hotel, Thomas McBreen, who works as a pointsman, and engine drivers Thomas Breeze and William Trott are chatting when the angry and abusive sailor reappears and starts hurling insults at someone inside the pub. Thomas McBreen quietly tells the man to be off home. The sailor responds by whipping out a clasp knife. He rushes at McBreen and stabs him in the chest before pulling the blade free. That will do you now this maniac says, and then he runs away. I'm Michael Adams and this is Not Dead But Gone, the third and final instalment in the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Birdman of Adelaide Jail. William Burns, who was then reported as 23 years old, had arrived in Melbourne aboard the ship Thomas Bell on the 7th of September, 1876. Now, just under a month later, he'd stabbed a man and run off. The victim, Thomas McBreen, aged 29, was hurried to the hospital. The wound was below the left collarbone. It was about three quarters of an inch deep. Not serious, but given how close it was to his heart, this was more good luck than anything else. Thomas McBreen would spend the next week recovering. Within hours of the attack, William Burns had been arrested in a boarding house in Spencer Street, and the bloody knife was found among his belongings. Four days after that, the ship Thomas Bell sailed on without him. Burns appeared in the city police court on the 11th of October. It was an open and shut case. The court heard the wound could have been fatal. Burns was found guilty of malicious wounding and he was remanded for sentencing. While he'd been called wild-looking by the Herald and a madman by the age, William Burns was overshadowed by a wilder-looking and far more madman who was the dark star of that day's court proceedings. This man was also charged with malicious wounding along with common assault but he wasn't some random English sailor. Instead, He was Melbourne's hangman and flagellator, the brutal drunkard Michael Gately. In the past month, he'd become ever more notorious because he'd married a young woman and then become the target of massed larrikin attacks. This state of affairs had been lovingly detailed by the city's newspapers, including the illustrated proto-tabloid Police News. The hangman had pleaded with the Victorian government for regular pay and a safe place to live as had been given to some of his predecessors. But Gately was denied. The Gately difficulty, as it was called, was much debated. But now the man had seemed to solve it himself by committing a serious assault. Despite arguing provocation, Gately was convicted and he was given three years with hard labour in Pentridge Prison. This meant Gately would be off the streets, stuck behind bars. Yet Conveniently sober and close at hand whenever a man needed to be hanged or flogged. As for William Burns, he was lucky that his victim had survived. Otherwise, he might have been Gately's victim. Burns was sentenced to 18 months with hard labour in Melbourne jail. His file at the Public Records Office of Victoria showing he was admitted on the 16th of October. Burns's luck had seen him duck the death sentence, but at this time in Victoria, another death sentence was handed down, at least by the newspaper The Weekly Times. See, it was October, spring had sprung, the weather was warm, and the population of sparrows was set to explode. The Weekly Times urged everyone to destroy these pests. Poison should be set, guns should be freely used, boys should be encouraged to take eggs and young birds from nests. Quote, We hope the various sparrow clubs will awake from their winter's sleep and again offer premiums for the destruction of this destructive bird and their eggs. During the time William Burns was in Melbourne jail, Michael Gately was twice brought from Pentridge to hang convicted murderers. Such executions cast a pall over the penitentiary. No doubt every man thought, there but for the grace of God, go I to Gately. William Burns perhaps pondered this more closely than most, given how close he'd come to committing murder. But it's very likely the prisoner had thought these thoughts before, back home as a boy. In part one, we heard a mid-December 1862 report about Sparrow destruction from the Devon newspaper Western Daily Mercury. This was a publication reporting on happenings in and around Devonport, which was where William Burns grew up. Turning the pages of the Daily Mercury just a few weeks to January 1863 is to see a rather startling little story. On the night of Friday the 9th of January, around 8 o'clock, a boy named William Burns had been in Cornwall Street in Devonport when he'd come across another lad named William Keist who was standing outside a store. Burns had hit this kid across the face with a branch, and then Burns had run away. William Keist had given chase. Burns had turned around and hit him again in the face before continuing his escape. Keist had caught up with Burns in a lane near where Burns lived. Keist had been about to hit Burns when Burns had said, If you strike me, I'll put a knife through you. Keist rushed, Burns pulled out a blade and slashed and cut the boy's hand twice. Bleeding profusely from this wound, William Keist ran for a constable. The little lad William Burns was found at home in his bed and he was arrested and charged. The kid didn't deny the crime, but he said he'd thrown the knife in the river. Evidence was given by the victim and by another witness in court a week later. The Mercury reported, quote, The bench said they were in some doubt as to how they should deal with the defendant, as it was a most serious offence. They would have sent him to the sessions had it not been for his youth. As it was, he would be fined in the highest penalty they could enforce, five pounds, in default of payment to undergo 21 days imprisonment. Was this the same William Burns? When Burns was convicted in Melbourne, he was recorded as having been born in 1853. He'd later say it was 1855. Either way, it made him an age match for the William Burns who'd stabbed a boy in Devonport in 1863, but had been considered too young by the magistrate to be sent to a superior court for trial. In 1863, Devonport's population was 50,000. So there may have been another young William Burns or two, but how many of them would provoke a fight and then use a knife? Given how many similar circumstances there were to Burns's later confirmed stabbing crimes, it seems almost certain that this had been him. Interestingly, if it was our William Burns, in this instance, he actually had aimed his blade at the hand about to strike him. William Burns served his time quietly in Melbourne jail and was released in early February 1878, having earned a couple of months of remissions. From there, he went to Peru and put himself into service aboard the Huasca, where he'd see his share of death and destruction. As I've noted, neither the specifics of Burns's war experiences nor his previous confirmed and probable stabbing offences were raised in court. While we can make of them what we may, they weren't taken into account by the jury on Thursday the 21st of December, 1882 in Adelaide when they deliberated on the guilt or innocence of William Burns for the murder of Henry Lowton. On that day, the jury was out for 90 minutes. Then those 12 men, good and true, filed back into Adelaide's Supreme Court. They informed his honor they had reached a verdict. William Burns was guilty of willful murder. His Honour asked Burns if he had anything to say as to why sentence should not be passed on him. Burns reportedly was unable to speak. He merely shook his head no. His Honour said, "'William Burns, you have been convicted "'on the clearest possible evidence of a cruel murder.'" The sentence of the court is that you be taken back to the prison from whence you were brought this morning and that you be there hanged by the neck until you are dead and that your body be buried within the precincts of the prison and may God have mercy on your soul. William Burns was taken back to his cell in Adelaide Jail. The men he'd worked with on the Douglas had lined up to give the evidence that had condemned him to die. His mother and his brother were on the other side of the world, and they had no idea of what had happened, what he'd done, and what he now faced. William Burns had no one in the world, but he did have his baby sparrow. The bird depended on Burns, and he took comfort from its devotion. They were two creatures living under the sentence of death. The bird had been shown mercy, and perhaps Burns might also still be spared. That decision would be made by South Australia's executive. The Adelaide newspapers lamented that their city had seen two murder trials resulting in three death sentences in the past week. The Hamley Bridge murder case was most troubling. The convicted husband and his supposedly pregnant wife had indeed killed the man. Yet it was also clear that the troublesome victim had given great provocation. But the William Burns case... That was open and shut. The newspaper said an example needed to be made. The man needed to die. The Evening Journal on Friday the 22nd of December 1882, quote, It was more serious because it took place on a ship, and to let it go unpunished would risk other officers. But the paper admitted that the case was a tragedy. Quote, If Burns' own statement that he is the support of his mother be correct, It is much to be deplored that he has brought himself into such a sad position. But with the evidence before them, the jury could not, as honest men, have come to any other conclusion than recorded in their verdict of willful murder. William Burns was a quiet and well-behaved prisoner. He appreciated the kindness shown to him by Adelaide Jail's governor, John Howell. Burns also listened attentively to the religious ministrations of South Australia's leading Presbyterian minister, the Reverend James Lyle. Nevertheless, it would have been a forlorn Christmas and New Year. This break also meant that the South Australian executive didn't meet until early January. First, they had to deal with the question of Elizabeth McGree, the wife convicted of the Hamley Bridge murder who'd claimed that she was now with child. Directed by the court, a jury of matrons had been convened, as it was in such instances, to inquire into the truth of her condition. This type of female examination had first been carried out in 1789 in Sydney on a convict woman charged with stealing. Anne Davis had claimed she was quick with child. In this case, the forewoman of the jury, As Watkin Tench recorded, a grave personage between 60 and 70 years old had delivered the verdict. She'd said, "'Gentlemen, she is as much with child as I am.' Anne Davis had been hanged, the first woman executed in Australia. But Elizabeth McGree had better luck. She actually was pregnant. Her death sentence was commuted to life in prison." And that triggered the executive to also extend mercy to her husband, Patrick. William Burns's case was considered by the same politicians two days later on Friday, the 5th of January, 1883. But the executive decided the law should take its course. William Burns was to hang at 8 in the morning on Thursday, the 18th of January. It was Dr Samuel Johnson who famously said, "Depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully." William Burns didn't quite have a fortnight. Days before he was due to hang, one of William Burns's old shipmates from the Thomas Bell arrived in Adelaide. This man, William Reed, who said he'd been the first mate aboard the Thomas Bell, related how in 1876 Burns had been exceedingly troublesome and violent aboard the vessel. William Reed claimed that Burns had had to be put in irons no less than seven times. As the South Australian Advertiser newspaper reported, quote, On one occasion, when all hands were called out, Burns did not make his appearance. The captain went into the forecastle to order him on deck at once, but he had hardly spoken when Burns felled him to the ground with a scraper. Reed rushed up to Burns and, presenting a revolver at him, threatened to shoot him if he were not quiet. Burns merely said, Fire away, in an offhand manner, and he was then placed in irons. At another time, when the men were reeling the mainsail, Burns spoke in an impertinent manner to Reed, who therefore knocked him down. Burns drew his knife and was only prevented from attacking the mate with it by some of the other sailors. William Reed's other claim was reported thus. A day or two after the ship arrived in Melbourne, Burns stabbed a man in a public house and got 18 months imprisonment for it. He also received an additional term of incarceration for his previous assault on Captain Griselia. William Reed's details about the name of the ship, the captain, and the prison term all match the details found in the Melbourne newspapers from 1876 and in Burns's prison file at the Public Records of Victoria. But that said, there's no record of Burns receiving an additional sentence for making an attack on the captain of the Thomas Bell. Further, Burns had been at liberty for four weeks before the Melbourne stabbing, not a couple of days, as Reed had said. If Burns had really knocked down his captain with a weapon, he would have come ashore in irons, as indeed had happened to Burns later, and he would have faced serious charges before the Thomas Bells sailed on. So William Reed was possibly embellishing Burns's more modest misbehaviour and misdemeanours, or he was making up a story that aligned with the man who was about to hang for murder. Even if Reed had been exaggerating, he was right about the Melbourne stabbing conviction and knowing that Burns had at least twice put a blade into a man, the Adelaide Express and Telegraph newspaper said it was right that he should hang. Quote, He was evidently a cruel man of ungovernable passions and without any respect for human life. Had he been preserved from the scaffold, he would probably, before long, in a sudden homicidal impulse, have killed one of the warders at the stockade. Perhaps. Or Burns might have lapsed into the docility he'd shown in his wooden box aboard the deck of the Douglas, or since his incarceration in Adelaide Jail. After all, this was the man who'd supposedly said to Robert Bible that he'd enjoyed being in Melbourne Jail better than being at sea. Perhaps William Burns was a rare bird who preferred to be in a cage. Newspapers reported that Burns had confessed his crime in jail and had accepted the justice of his death sentence. He was said to be resigned to his fate and focused on religious instruction and contemplation. Reverends told prisoners awaiting execution that they should only concern themselves with matters of salvation and the eternal world to come. But Burns couldn't let go entirely of things from this earth. After all, he had a mother. At first he said he would not write to her because he wanted to keep his crime and punishment from her as long as possible. Burns knew when the news reached his mum, she'd be heartbroken. And her cupboards might also be bare because it was his remittances that had been her chief means of support. But as time grew shorter, Burns relented, and he wrote to his mother and his brother to express his sorrow for his wicked deed and to proclaim his confidence in his eternal redemption. In Burns's new state of penitence, he was so sure of his place in heaven that he said to a prison official, When you walk over my grave, you can say, Poor Burns isn't dead, he's gone. Accepted wisdom was that Burns deserved to hang. Yet not everyone agreed. Ironically, it was often in the wake of people being spared that arguments were heard against capital punishment. Why let this killer go, but not that one? After all, all had been found guilty. Better, critics said, to do away with hanging entirely except in extraordinary cases. What was really rare was an executive that would spare one set of murderers yet condemn another one in such quick succession as it just happened in the Hamley Bridge and Burns cases. Letters appearing in the Adelaide Daily newspapers argued this point, yet they were minority voices. As the Kapunda Herald put it, A few straggling effusions, more or less against capital punishment, have found their way into the papers, but on the whole there has been a singular unanimity of opinion that this was emphatically one of those cases when the law should be allowed to take its course. As I explored in my book Hanging Ned Kelly, the gallows were a cruel and crude execution method in Colonial and Post-Federation Australia. Whatever you can imagine could go wrong, did go wrong. When the drop was too short, victims strangled slowly as they grabbed at their necks and danced on air. When the drop was too long, victims were partly or even completely decapitated, much to the horror of onlookers. Sometimes the rope broke and the victim hit the ground alive, only to have to go through it all over again. Sometimes the hangman got it right and the victim appeared to die instantly with a broken neck. But even then, how could you know for sure? The hangman was a hated figure, despite being known as the finisher of the law. Part of this hatred was on account of how they bungled executions the first hanging in South Australia offers one of the most gruesome stories in colonial history. On the 2nd of May 1838, Michael Magee was to be hanged for breaking into Sheriff Sam Smart's house and shooting at this high official. Though the ball fired from the gun had only grazed the man's ear, Michael Magee was condemned to die. He was taken to the North Parklands, where a gum tree was used as a gallows. In the way of the earlier Sydney executions, a cart was to serve as the scaffold. The hangman, reportedly grotesquely disguised, affixed his noose to a branch. The South Australian government had had great difficulty in procuring an executioner, and this man had only been enticed at the last moment by a £10 payment. He wasn't worth a single penny. For when the hangman pulled the cart away, Michael McGee was left dangling and choking and grabbing at the rope around his neck. The hangman then panicked, jumped on a horse and galloped off. The police chased and brought him back. The finisher of the law then finished the law medieval style. As the Adelaide Observer later put it, "...clinging onto the legs of the shrieking victim amidst the execrations of the crowd." Since that dark day in 1838, there had been 36 more people hanged in South Australia. Just over half of these were indigenous men, and there was the one woman, Elizabeth Walcock, in 1873. Bungling didn't stop with that first debacle. In July 1877, a man named Charles Streitman convicted of murder, had spent his days treated with kindness by Adelaide Jail Governor John Howe and embracing eternal salvation under the ministrations of Reverend James Lyle. In other words, a case very similar to that of William Burns. Charles Streitman had faced the portable gallows inside the walls of Adelaide Jail. He ascended the scaffold in a state of grace. He bid the Governor and the Reverend goodbye. Taking his final step onto the trapdoor, he said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Then Ellis, the bumbling drunkard executioner, took over. He had trouble putting the cap over Strytman's head. Then he forgot to strap his legs. Worst of all, he made the drop far too short. When he pulled the lever, Strytman had just three feet of rope. The man hit the bottom, rebounded and landed back on the platform on his feet where he had to be pushed off again. As he swayed, Charles Streitman's chest heaved and he made labouring breathing sounds for 22 or 23 minutes. William Burns could at least thank his lucky stars that Ellis had died in 1881. He would now face a new hangman identified only as Robert Beard. This man was making his debut, but it was reported this hanging would mark an advance in execution craft. The hangman would use a new method in which a thimble ensured the noose closed quick, making it more likely the neck would be broken. This thimble technique had been recently developed by the English master hangman, Marwood. William Burns would also get a drop of four and a half feet, believed to be sufficient for a quick exit, though hanging would never be an exact science. But in case something should go wrong, at least this time it wouldn't be evident to the officials and reporters who were to witness the hanging. As the Kapunda Herald reported, quote, The scaffold is covered round with black cloth so that the unfortunate victim to the requirements of the law will be invisible after the bolt is drawn. This, the paper thought, made hanging less revolting to those looking on, but more terrifying to those who might commit such crimes. Its muddled logic went this way, quote, Step by step, capital punishment is being divested of those elements of the horrible which have for so long served to point to many of the objections to its retention. While it is fair to assume that the very secrecy that surrounds this last dread penalty of offended justice will add new terrors to it in the sight of reckless criminals. On his last night, Burns told the warder watching him how grateful he was to Mr. and Mrs. Howell for their kindness to him. He reiterated that he was ready to meet his Maker and that he believed in forgiveness. Burns said he wasn't going to go to sleep. Quote, Why should I sleep? I shall have enough sleep tomorrow. Even so, he dozed off around three in the morning for around 90 minutes. Then he got up and got dressed. At six o'clock, Burns had breakfast, eggs and coffee, and then he smoked a pipe, which he seemed to enjoy. Burns prayed and sang bits of hymns until the Reverend Lyle arrived at seven o'clock. While Burns' penitence had already been reported by the press, the existence of the prisoner's pet had not been made public. By now, the little sparrow had been in his care for more than a month. Having perhaps offered it part of his last meal, Burns had to say his goodbyes to the bird. The sparrow, oblivious to his fate, was oblivious to its own. What would become of it? Burns surely would have wondered this. Its kind were still being killed out there in their thousands. Burns relinquished the sparrow to the care of one of the warders. Given the kindness they'd shown to him, it had seemed very likely that the guard reassured Burns the bird would be all right. Burns, whose irons had been struck off, remained in prayer with the Reverend Lyle. When the clock struck eight, the prison bell began to toll. It was time, and Burns was led from his cell. He walked with the Reverend, a city missionary, and a few warders along a corridor, and through the courtyard to the big iron gate, where the procession was joined by the sheriff and under sheriffs, doctors, a couple of reporters, and the governor of the jail, Mr. Howell. On seeing the gallows, which had been erected on what was described as a reserve, William Burns's face turned pale and he shuddered. But he recovered almost immediately, and reciting the Lord's Prayer, he walked unassisted to the steps of the scaffold. There he shook hands with the governor and with the Reverend. Both were reported to be considerably affected by his quiet goodbye. Burns stepped up to the drop where the hangman was waiting. Mr. Howe followed to ensure that preparations were complete. No one wanted another horrific scene like that of Charles Streitman. As a last act, Burns kissed the governor's hand. Then the hangman lowered the white cap over Burns's face and adjusted the noose around his neck. Mr. Howell descended the steps. The sheriff gave the signal, and the bolt was drawn. Burns dropped, and apart from a few muscular twitchings, he was still. It was one of those good hangings, where the victim, who was swung into eternity, died without a struggle. Of course, Burns had fallen behind a black curtain, so who was to say what he knew or didn't know as he exited this world? But it was at this point uniformly in newspaper reports, that the Sparrow made its entrance into the story, and this cast the drama of the doomed man in a new and much more sympathetic light. The advertiser reported, quote, As soon as the execution was over, one of the warders produced a young Sparrow, which had been given to the prisoner shortly after his incarceration, and which he had made a great pet of. The little bird had lived in his cell and been a companion to the unhappy man in his last moments, and when it was taken from him on Thursday morning, he seemed greatly affected. The feathery prisoner was released later on and flew about the jail for some time as if looking for its protector, apparently expecting him to bring its morning crumbs. Port Elliott's Southern Argus newspaper reported, The man during his confinement was given a young sparrow, which had been caught in the jail yard and he had made the poor homeless thing a great pet, it serving as a dear companion to him. On the execution morning, it was seen perched on the shoulder of one of the officials, as if innocently awaiting its condemned master to give it its morning breakfast as usual. It was subsequently set at liberty, and wandered the prison yards as if in search of burns. The Evening Journal The unfortunate man Burns, who appears to have had much good in his composition, left behind a touching remembrance in the shape of a young sparrow which he has tamed during the time he has been awaiting his death. This bird was taken out of a nest of young sparrows and given to Burns, to whom the occupation of taming the little fledgling seemed to have afforded some consolation. The bird was to be seen on Thursday hopping about on the shoulder of one of the turnkeys. But the Sydney Daily Telegraph, the Melbourne Age and other major colonial city and country newspapers were to run a wire report from Adelaide that claimed the sparrow had been there for the execution. Quote, He was greatly affected by the sight of the bird flitting about the scaffold while the preparations were in progress. Burns would remain hanging for an hour, as was customary, to ensure no life was present. Then he was cut down, and, as the law dictated, he was buried in unconsecrated earth inside the prison, his grave the latest in the line of those who'd gone to the gallows before him. Burns had said he would not be dead, but just gone. He wasn't gone yet, at least not in hearts and minds, and neither was the sparrow. Reverend Lyre was greatly affected by his experience with Burns and on the next Sunday at the Flinders Street Presbyterian Church he would deliver a widely reported sermon entitled Lessons from the Condemned Cell. The Reverend's main message was that Burns had engendered much sympathy, itself a manifestation of God's mercy and had gone to his maker in a state of grace and forgiveness. The Reverend said he hadn't pried into the prisoner's past but that Burns had volunteered some things he now felt at liberty to make use of for the advantage of others. Burns had revealed he'd attended Sunday school as a child in Plymouth. That he'd known right from wrong, the Reverend said, made his case all the more tragic. As the South Australian Register newspaper paraphrased, quote, he was wayward and self-willed and did not carry his convictions into practice. And he had led a wild and wicked life, and was an easy prey to temptation. After returning from a long voyage, he would allow himself to be fastened upon by those wretched parasites who were always on the lookout for such as he, and who would conduct sailors to the haunts of infamy, and keep them until their hard-earned wages from a long voyage were spent, and then turn them adrift. That was the kind of life Burns lived, a long season of hard work, and then a short time of lawless license and then another long voyage. As for his experience in the War of the Pacific, Burns, quote, described the scene on the deck of the Waska as one of the most horrible that nature could conceive. It had been in the midst of this carnage, Reverend Lyle revealed, that Burns had prayed to God to have mercy upon him so that he might see his mother again. But back in England, he'd not seen her. Instead, quote, he fell into the hands of the land sharks of the port, and in a few days afterwards, engaged in the ship which brought him to this colony, where he committed the crime. Reverend Lyle's sermon was printed in numerous newspapers, but he hadn't mentioned the sparrow. That was left to an anonymous poet, who contributed his original verse to Port Elliot's Southern Argus. From a modern point of view, this bard penetrated far deeper into the fate of Burns and the bird. Titled The Execution of Burns, the poem was written on the 25th of January, 1883, and it would be published prefaced with the extract from the advertiser's report on Burns and the Sparrow. The opening stanza imagines Burns in his cell, condemned to die, the subject of voices arguing for and against capital punishment. The forces of mercy say that we can't know the numerous provocations that worked upon Burns' all the way back to his childhood Quote, "perchance his early training fed and fanned hot anger's flame which grew with him until alas it murderous became maybe the merciful viewpoint says he didn't have a good start what we would call privilege Quote, "perchance advantages were few to prompt a calm career a mother loves him cause her not a hopeless needless tear" Burns is then pictured composing his last letters. He writes his mother words she'll read when he's stiff and cold. His brother hears the consequence of anger uncontrolled. God help them both to bear their grief and wear their life disgrace. And in that clime where mercy rules, gaze once more on his face. But though he won't be able to see his family again until heaven, Burns does have the comfort of the sparrow. The poem continues. To what small things affection clings, things one would deem absurd. His prison life gave proof of this. He loved an English bird. A homely plain young sparrow, which soon quite fond he became, and had but love for one from who so many had but blame. Perchance the bird recalled a time of boyhood blithe and free, when none was happier, no more bright or joyous ever than he. When he watched the Sparrows build amid their chattering din, its Twitter would recall those scenes that had such charms for him. And he would see his mother's face and hear his mother's voice. And for one brief glad moment, he would feel his heart rejoice. And then the cold grim walls would cause this lovely scene to fly. And on his ear would grate the words, a prisoner doomed to die. The sparrows' homely freedom oft relieved the prospect grim. It had no cold mistrust nor fear nor haughty glance for him. And thus together peaceable within the gloomy cell, the sinner and the sinless one, the free and captive dwell. Yet this consolation is fleeting. Quote, but he must die, the time speed on, the fatal hour is near. Another world demands his time, a happier sinless sphere. The following verses recount his penitence, quoting Burns's own words about not sleeping and not being dead but gone. Then he hangs. Quote, the sparrow is companionless, none now its wants will tend. Earth may have lost a criminal, the bird has lost a friend. Was it just to hang William Burns? The poet offers that justice cannot exist without mercy. Like Emily Dickinson, though he could not have read her poem, he seems to say that hope was a thing with feathers. Quote, And is it just to tear away from man the angel hope, and cut off opportunities with the accursed rope? The poet continues, Too many to eternity despairingly assent. Let us not shorten man's short day, tis shortest at the best. Give him full leisure to repent, and leave to God the rest. It was an eloquent argument against capital punishment, and a meditation that reflected what many must have felt upon learning of Burns and his bird. In verse, Burns had lived on. But of course, the whole drama, the murder of Henry Lowton and the execution of William Burns, hadn't happened at all, at least in the minds of those living in England. Their illusion began to be shattered on the 25th of January 1883, the very same day that the poem was written. It was on that day that a plainer and far grimmer piece of correspondence arrived to a house in Coburg Street in North Shields. The letter was addressed to Mrs. Jane Lowton, Henry Lowton's wife, his widow. Not that she knew it until she opened the envelope. The letter was dated Ship Douglas, Port Adelaide, December 15th. 1882. The letter was from Captain John Wilson, master of the Douglas, who had to convey the melancholy intelligence of the murder aboard his ship of her husband, Henry Lowton, second officer. In the letter, Captain Wilson set out the basics. Jane Lowton's world was suddenly upside down. Her husband had been dead four months. Their son, Henry Jr., would never see his father again. As the wife and child of a veteran sailor, they must have considered one day he might be lost at sea, but lost to a storm or a sinking, not to a stabbing. On the other side of the world, in Adelaide, the aftermath of the burns hanging continued to haunt. On the 17th of February, Two days after the poem was published in the Southern Argus, and a full month since the execution, the Register reported that kind-hearted citizens were raising money to send to Burns' mother. The little article said, quote, The poor woman resides in Devonport, near Plymouth, England, and it has been announced that through the death of her son, she will be deprived of her chief means of support. Directly beneath this little item, there was a sparrow update not on Burns's bird, but on its brethren. Quote, The number of sparrow heads and eggs which have been paid for by the government up to the end of January is heads 42,777, eggs 275,171. Captain John Wilson had written his letter to Jane Lowton in mid-December. That was before the trial. In England, William Burns' fate was still unknown. That was until his letter arrived, along with the Adelaide newspapers. William Burns' mother, who was 72 years old, was heartbroken and became very ill. Her health didn't recover entirely, just like her finances. But when she was feeling a bit better, she set pen to paper. Three months later, her letter reached Mr. Howell, Governor of Adelaide Jail. The Evening Journal reported on the 11th of June, 1883, that she, quote, writes in a simple touching spirit of resignation and expresses her heartfelt thanks for the kindness shown her erring son by the missionary and ministers who attended him in the condemned cell, also to Mr. Howell for his considerate conduct. The account of her letter continued, She has derived much support in her trial from the statements that her son listened earnestly to religious consolation in his last moments. Mrs. Burns was also surely glad that her William had the companionship of the sparrow. Even if he hadn't written of it in his letter, the English press had reprinted details of her son's trial, his last penitent day, and his hanging. The bird's presence was included in every account. Back in part one, I mentioned how the murder aboard Douglas had cast a gloom over the ship, which likely would have commingled with sailors' superstitions. Henry Lowton had ten men on his watch that night. Lowton and Burns were both dead. The case was closed and the ship had sailed on. But were all the men's fears banished? We can't know. What we do know is that on the 10th of June, 1883, Right as Mrs Burns' letter was being reported in the Adelaide Press, the Douglas was sailing to Amsterdam, having set out from a river port in Burma. George Clark, the Douglas's 14-year-old cabin boy from Grimsby, was swept overboard and he was drowned. The lad's untimely death is recorded in the Register of Deaths at Sea of British Nationals as found at ancestry.com.au. Coming so soon after the stabbing and then the hanging, the crew of the Douglas might well have felt that the men from that watch had been cursed. Now three of them were dead. Not being able to give the boy a proper burial, that was bad luck. Nevertheless, the Douglas sailed on for Amsterdam. What choice was there? A week later, again beset by heavy seas, the 22-year-old Finnish sailor J. L. Orkusen was swept overboard and he was drowned too. The fourth man of the night watch to die in less than nine months. What then became of Burns's sparrow? The newspaper reports depicted it as being freed. But for how long? The bird still had a price on its head it was still under a death sentence. Yet, it might have made it. That was because not long after Burns was hanged, the bounty on sparrows was lifted. Not because the war was won, but because the humans had lost. Sparrows would remain a major pest well into the 20th century, but then they began to decline. In October 1952, this was noticed by one of Australia's preeminent pathologists and naturalists. Sir John Burton Cleland was born in Norwood in Adelaide in June 1878. A birdwatcher from an early age, in 1902, he joined the Royal Australasian Ornithologists' Union. Cut to 50 years later, and as a pathologist, John Burton Cleland had given evidence in two of Australia's most famous mysteries. In 1909, he testified in the trial of Martha Rendell, who was charged with murdering her de facto husband's son and suspected of killing two of his daughters. Martha would hang for the crime, the last woman to go to the gallows in Western Australia. 40 years on from that, back home in South Australia, John Burton Cleland would perform the inquest on the body known as the Somerton Man. He suspected that the man found on the beach had been poisoned, though he could find no traces. Now, in the years between these two headline-grabbing stories, Sir John Burton Cleland had an extraordinary career that included work in disease research and Indigenous Australian anthropology. He'd also found time to become a leading expert on birds in Australia and was a past president of the Royal Australasian Ornithologists Union. He'd also been the president of the Royal Society of New South Wales and the Royal Society of South Australia. Put it this way, Professor Cleland was about as far from Edward Wilson and the acclimatisation advocates as you could get. Here he is in April 1933 writing a science article for the Adelaide Advertiser headlined, Balance of Nature Disturbed by Man. Quote, Man has been one of the most important disturbers of this balance of nature. This is strikingly shown in Australia. Our Australian Aborigine, with his comparatively feeble control over animals and plants, had, before the advent of the white man, reached a stage of equilibrium with his surroundings. The European invasion of his country rapidly upset the balance of nature as it then existed. He continued, The natural vegetation was cut down, the ground was tilled, Flocks and herds played havoc with the natural vegetations and, incidentally, our sheep and later on our rabbits furnished abundant food for the dingo. Various pests appeared. Some of these were deliberately introduced, such as rabbits and foxes, sparrows and starlings. Some came as unintentional passengers on our ships, such as rats and mice. Some came as parasites on stock and other domestic animals such as the hyatid tapeworm and the sheep tick. Some, such as the seeds of weeds, came in ballast and as impurities amongst useful agricultural seeds. Twenty years after that article, in October 1952, Professor Cleland was at least pleased that native birds were increasing in number and variety in and around Adelaide. The other good news was the decline in sparrow numbers. Professor Cleland believed that 80 years after its Australian introduction, a balance was being struck in the competition for resources with native birds. But when and where had Sir John Burton Cleland first sparked his natural scientific interest? When had it first become a paying career? Very likely it had been when he was four years old in South Australia, he told the paper. Today, the decrease in sparrows would make it impossible for a boy to collect in an afternoon 40 sparrow eggs, as I did, five in my mouth at a time, descending a tree, as a lad to earn the two and six, a hundred, which the state special commission then paid. The paper reminded readers that shortly after this, the commission had given up, defeated, resigned to sparrow pairs producing up to 20 young every single year. Yet while the South Australian government had given up on killing sparrows, it did persist in its policy of executing people. The last hanging in Adelaide jail was the rapist and murderer Glenn Valance, who went to the gallows in November 1964. At that time, sparrows were still familiar all over Australia, even if they were no longer in plague numbers. They had after a century, become part of the landscape, ever present to the point that you didn't even notice them. And now we really don't notice them, even when we try. The English house sparrow, once so ubiquitous, has gone into steep decline. Most commentary, where commentary is to be found, says that while sparrow numbers began to dip as early as the 1920s, it's really accelerated in the past half century or so. When was the last time you saw one? I've been working on this podcast for a couple of months, so I've been on the lookout. And in that period, I've spent a fair bit of time walking around Sydney, Melbourne, and the Blue Mountains. I haven't seen a single sparrow. I know they're still out there because a Melbourne mate was also on the lookout and he snapped a photo. When I mentioned the demise of the sparrow to another friend, his response was, do pigeons next. It's an understandable reaction to the extinction of a destructive introduced species. Yet English house sparrows aren't only declining in Australia, it's happening in many parts of their native range in Europe. In London, for example, sparrow numbers fell by 60% between 1994 and 2004. In North America, where they were introduced in 1851, their numbers have fallen 85% since 1966. Why? It's believed the sparrows decline, like their rise, reflects how we reshape our environment. In Australia, colonial and post-federation architectural and agricultural expansion fed and bred sparrows. Spillages of seed and grain helped to feed the birds. In Sydney, boys who swept horse poo and other rubbish off streets were then called sparrow starvers. But cars, improved transportation of produce and of sanitation really worked to start starving the sparrows. From the middle of the 20th century, farming practices also began to change dramatically. Small holdings were increasingly consolidated into bigger agribusinesses and this reduced the number of farm buildings suitable for sparrows to breed in. Big farming concerns could also centralise crop protection and bird eradication efforts right at the same time that pesticides were cutting into the food supply of small birds that ate insects. Meanwhile, in cities, towns and suburbs, homes, businesses and office towers offered fewer architectural protrusions and adornments suitable as nesting spots for sparrows less able to be quantified but also suspected is that sparrows breed less effectively when stressed by pollutants in the environment and the weather extremes that come with climate change 160 years ago sparrows thrived as part of the colonialist expansion but the world being built would ultimately prove hostile to their chances what does this say about us i don't have an answer to that But what I can say is that 140 years ago, a single sparrow that had been deemed a pest brought comfort to a condemned man, helping to ease his way out of this world and into eternity. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back soon with another episode. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting.